0: This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care, here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters,
1: care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good afternoon to you. I am Jason Kong. Thank you so much for joining us today. Usually I say I am here with Mary Lucas, but <laughs> Mary is playing hurt today. She's joining us by the phone. Mary, you're, you're having some back issues. I'm so sorry that you're dealing with that today.
2: I know. I feel like this is something maybe we should have someone come on the show and talk about physical therapy or, um, you know, I. I that pain is debilitating. And I know that many people out there deal with it as well. And I'm experiencing that now and it's making me dream up a whole new show that we should, we should have about all of this. So, uh, in the works, in the works. <laughs>
1: sometimes we come up with show topics organically in good ways. And sometimes we come up with show topics in some not so fun ways. And that, that sounds like a not so fun way, but, uh, I, I hope you get to feeling better soon. I'm sorry. You can't be Thank here you. in the studio with us, but we appreciate you play and hurt today, and we hope everyone listening can bear with us a little bit as Mary is uh, on the phone today. But we do have a wonderful guest on the line. We're very excited for today's show because we're going to get an update related to COVID-19 from Dr. Elizabeth Tilson, and she is the state health director and chief medical officer with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Tilson, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a really important topic. And Mary, I'm sorry that you are down and out. I have a lot of sympathy for you um, and join you in struggling with back pain a lot. So I I appreciate you joining us, even though I know that you are um, probably very uncomfortable. So,
2: Thank you. Thank you. We're excited to have you on the show. Jason and I were just talking a few weeks ago about COVID boosters and where we're at. And we all saw the pandemic is considered or the emergency is considered over. And, you know, I was thinking, I don't really know where I should be in my booster shots. I'll be first to admit that. So I'm excited to talk about this with you and get a good update on on where COVID-19 is. So maybe we just start there. The emergency has ended, but what stage of the pandemic are we really considered to be in at this point?
3: That's right. The public health emergency has ended because COVID-19 is a place now where it is not so disruptive and such a threat to our healthcare system and to our people. So we're able to move out of that emergency phase. Sometimes people call this the endemic phase, but really what it means is that the virus is still out there, the virus is still circulating, and it will probably continue to circulate. But enough people have enough immunity, and we have enough tools like vaccines, like treatments, like tests that it's not causing as much severity throughout our population and is not causing such a strain on our healthcare system as it was. So we can address it like we do other um, infectious diseases like flu that that um, circulate regularly.
2: So when we think about the vaccines that are out there and, you know, we all got our first vaccine, uh, most people got their booster, at what stage should we be in the booster series now, or should we be getting boosted regularly? Is this something that's kind of like the flu vaccine where we should get it once a year or once a season, or talk to us about the boosters, the vaccines, and where we should be in this process at this point of the game. Yeah,
3: the recommendation for uh, most people, little ones are a little bit different and, and parents of little ones should talk to their physicians. But for most people, older children and adults, you should have at least one updated or sometimes we call bivalent vaccine. So you should have had at least one shot since September of last year. That's when those updated bivalent boosters came out. And if you're 65 and over, you can go ahead and get a second one of those updated boosters four months after your first one.
2: Great, great. So maybe I'm doing another one. (laughs) Um, At this stage in the virus, if if you're exposed and you're boosted appropriately, so from September of last year, what should you be doing if you've been exposed and you haven't tested positive, you don't have symptoms, what are the steps now to protect yourself and others if, if you've been exposed?
3: Yeah, that's a really, really good question because again, COVID is still out there and we do want to be sure people are not only protecting themselves, but protecting others, especially those around them that might be at higher risk for complications um, and more severity. So one nice thing is that recommendations are the same regardless of your vaccine or booster status at this point. Enough people have had enough immunity either from a vaccine or from an infection that the recommendations are the same. And that means for if you're exposed, then the recommendation is to go ahead and wear a mask for 10 days after the exposure and to go ahead and get tested um, after five days, because sometimes it takes a little time once you've been exposed to if you're going to be positive, turn positive. So wear a mask for 10 days and get tested after, um, after five days after your exposure.
2: That's really helpful. While we're on the topic of masks, I've seen in the news that our hospitals have kind of lightened up their, um, their guidance on wearing a mask when you're in the hospital or visiting someone. Should we be wearing a mask out in public at any places, or is that only if we're exposed? What's kind of the guideline now on, on masking?
3: Yeah, so overall, so certainly anybody should feel comfortable wearing a mask um, anytime. We want people to be very comfortable um, doing what they feel is right and protecting themselves. So anybody can certainly choose to wear a mask anytime. And some people might choose to wear a mask if they're in a crowded indoor setting or around a lot of people um, where there's just a higher risk of exposure. So um, people should feel very comfortable wearing that. Um, If you are sick, if you have symptoms, And regardless if it's COVID-19 or flu or other respiratory viruses, you don't want to spread any of those. So if you are sick um, and or you've tested positive for COVID, then you should wear a mask for 10 days. If you've been exposed, as we talk about, you should wear a mask um, after 10 days as well. In healthcare settings, right, it's become um, optional overall, but still some of the guidelines that people are sick and in a healthcare setting that they should also be wearing a mask.
2: Cool we have all these testing kits have come out and we're getting them mailed to us and there's just many ways you can get tested are, are the at-home testing kits still pretty reliable should you be testing at a provider um are in is there still an option to get tests mailed to you i know that there when the pandemic started there was a way that you could get them mailed to you for free what are the kind of options for at-home testing and is and is that reliable still So at-home testings are
3: reliable, Um, that's a really, really nice, easy point of access for people to to know um, if they're positive or not, and then be able to take those um, measures to protect themselves and others around them. So yes, people should feel comfortable with at-home tests. That's a really nice um, piece of the evolution of our our tools. You are right that many of the mail um, systems that allowed people to order it by mail, many of them have gone away. However, Mm -hmm. on our website, if people go to myspot.nc.gov and they click on the testing link, we still have availability of free tests in the communities. So all across the state, we have multiple community sites where people can go and they can get up to 10 tests for free um, at those community sites. So while the availability of the mail tests are less, we still have a lot of availability of free at-home tests people can pick up um, in their community.
2: That's great. That's something I did not know. So that's, that's very helpful. Thank you for sharing that. If you test positive, you know, I've seen this kind of test-to-treat sites uh, when I was kind of poking around and trying to figure out what I should be doing with the COVID uh, boosters. If you're, what are the current treatment options if you test positive? And can you talk to us a little bit about the test-to-treat testing?
3: Yeah, I'm happy to, and again, on our website, myspot.nc.gov, again, if you click on the testing and treatment link, it will get you to all of this um, treatment information as well, as well as testing. It's all kind of there in in one link. Um, Test to treat sites are kind of literally just that. They're a place you can go to get tested, and then if you test positive, to go ahead and get started on treatment. So it's kind of a one-stop shop. A lot of our pharmacies um, are doing that in that test to treat site, but you can also Um, test positive with a home test, and then get access to treatment through providers as well. So you don't have to do a test-to-treat site. It's just a really nice kind of one-stop shopping. In terms of treatment, main treatments now are by mouth pills. Two main types. One is Paxlovid that people may have heard of. The other one is, it's a hard one to say, Molnupiravir. Um, As well, for some people, Paxlovid has some If people are different medications or different medical conditions, Paxlovid may not be a great choice for them, and so we do have that alternative one. And it is, but you do need to get a prescription for this. You need to get this prescribed by a provider. Um, So that's why the test to treat is nice, because the provider is right there and or um, there's other ways that you can either contact your own doctor or on our treatment site you can understand links of be able to get to a doctor to um, prescribe that. The really important piece about these medications is that it's important to take them within five days of starting to have symptoms in order to have the best effect. So that's why it's nice for people to have these at-home tests at, at the ready, so if they do have symptoms, they can go ahead and get tested right away and then be able to start accessing treatment early on.
1: That's great advice. We're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Tilson. She is the state health director and chief medical officer with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. We're going to continue our conversation with this COVID-19 update. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic.
0: This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a
1: service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF, news, talk, traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Dr. Elizabeth Tilson. She is the State Director and Chief Medical Officer with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. And we're talking about all things COVID, getting an update on where things stand. Uh, We found out, you know, where we stand in terms of getting boosters, and now we're going to pivot a little bit, Mary, and I, I do want to remind everyone that, uh, Mary, you are on the phone today playing H.E.R.D. a little bit, and we appreciate that. Uh, but we're, we're now going to pivot to a, a discussion on long COVID.
2: Yes, yes. It's something that I've heard and, and seen a little bit in the news, and um, it's just such a abstract thing for me, and I am really want to dig into this a little bit with you, Dr. Tilson. Can you talk to us about what is long COVID? is this an actual virus itself or is it the impact of the virus? What, what is long COVID actually?
3: Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. And just to tee up what, uh, what you said, your observation, it feels really kind of nebulous right now. One thing I can say for sure is we have a lot more to learn about long COVID. We are still learning about that. And, um, and there's, there's still a lot of uncertainties and a lot of unknowns about long COVID. But, it does not seem to be an act- it's actually a different virus or it's actually an active infection of the virus. Instead, what it seems to be is the long-term effects of that virus on the body, especially inflammation. What we are finding in that the initial infection that can cause a lot of the lung and breathing problems is that kind of short-term, but it also seems this virus sets up inflammation throughout the body, through different organs, through our blood vessels, and it's was that long-term inflammation that seems to be causing a lot of the long covid symptoms.
2: Wow, that sounds it, it you know, you, you I've had covid a couple times and you know, it's it, it was pretty bad, especially the first time I had it and it just puts you out so hard and I felt for weeks after. I just felt exhausted. It it really took a toll, so I can't imagine it continuing on and, and we just don't know the impact of um, everything at the time and um, it's just it's it's crazy um, so what are some of the signs and symptoms that someone should look for that would maybe trigger oh maybe this is long COVID and and, and how long do those signs and symptoms last in long COVID like what is considered long? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of different signs and symptoms. We're learning more and more and more what symptoms of those long COVIDs are, but some of the most common ones, just as you articulated, profound tiredness and fatigue that continues on, sometimes breathing problems, um, difficulty thinking or concentrating. Some people um, term use the term brain fog, but just not being able to find the right words and just You can just feel that your brain is working much more slowly than it used to and you can't do the things as quickly as you were able to do. Sometimes sleep problems, joint problems, muscle aches, um, joint and muscle aches. So these really kind of multi-systemic or multi-organ effects where things are just not working the way that they were working before are some of the symptoms. Now, how long does it last? We're going to continue to learn on that. Um, You know, for some people, it may be four weeks. For some people, it may be months. For some people, it may actually be years. And so part of what we're going to be learning of long COVID is how long is long as we are um, living with people now more and more past their COVID infection.
2: Wow. Are there some people that are more at risk or some populations that are more at risk for developing long COVID and these symptoms and the, the duration of them? yeah
3: what we are seeing so far and again we're going to have to be learning more and more but it does seem that people that had more severe acute uh, when i say acute infection meaning that that short term early on infection but people who were uh, most severe Um, Illness and sickness with COVID-19 seem to be at higher risk of having long COVID. People who had underlying health conditions already prior to their COVID-19 infection, people who didn't get the COVID vaccine actually seem to be at higher risk. And a really interesting thing is that even if you had COVID and you had long COVID, getting the vaccine actually really helps to um, moderate or decrease those symptoms of long COVID. Um, and then people who have, I mean, sometimes we see this with kids. Sometimes people have heard the term MISC, which is multi-system inflammatory syndom- syndrome. It's about four weeks after your initial infection, you get this really profound inflammation across all of your organs. And so people who've had that um, also seem to have then more ongoing of this like inflammatory symptom in long COVID.
2: Wow, just another reason to make sure that you're vaccinated and keep kept up on your vaccines and, and hopefully preventing some of this. So right. it sounds very debilitating. Is this actually, is it recognized as a, a disability or, or, you know, I can imagine that some of these symptoms can be very, um, very impactful on work. And, you know, if you're, you're going into work every day and you're exhausted and you're hurting, and is, is, is long COVID actually recognized as a disability now?
3: Uh, so not always, but yes, it can be recognized as disability and not so much the diagnosis long COVID. It really is those um, symptoms that may be severe enough to substantially limit um, your major life activity. So it's not so much the term long COVID, it is how profound your symptoms are and how they may be affecting your life. And so. With it, it can be considered a disability under the Americans with Disability Act, but again, it really depends on the severity of the symptoms and how they're affecting your ability to do your major life functions.
2: If you think you may have long COVID, you know, it's one of those things, like I said, it's very abstract. Where, What should you do next? Is this something you go to your general practitioner for? Should you be at urgent care? Uh, what kind of is the next steps if you're thinking, oh, I may have the signs and symptoms you're talking about, or I did have COVID and it's, it's really bothered me. Is, is there anything that you can do for, for next steps if, if you're suspecting that?
3: Yeah, so, um, you know, there is, there is no quote unquote cure or true treatment to make those symptoms go away. But there are some things um, and we're learning more and more that can be done to, to make those symptoms a little bit better. So uh, this is not an urgent care or emergency department type visit because these tend to be very, you know, long-term symptoms. So either someone can talk to their, if they have an established doctor, that's great. In North Carolina, UNC has a really nice long COVID um, clinic as well. Um, and so it's good to talk, again, to your physician or a specialty clinic on long COVID. And then they can work with you on things. Again, there's not a medicine that people can take to make these symptoms go away, but there are some things that you can do to make the symptoms better. Some of them are very basic, just kind of good health, making sure people are having enough sleep, making sure that they're eating well, making sure they're having exercise. Um, There's things um, that can be done to really help with some of that that cognition or that brain fog to help um, the brain um, start um, working a little bit better. So there are things to do to make the symptoms better. And we're learning more and more as well. And and again, UNC's Long COVID Clinic, um, they're really um, up-to-date on all the the most up-to-date research and are also looking to do even more research on how we can promote the best treatment for people with Long COVID.
2: You knew my next question. I participated in I participated in, uh, I participated in um, the COVID vaccine trials, and um, I was I was vaccinated long before the vaccines were out there. It was a very um, nervous time, but I I was very excited to participate in the trials. And is there research? Is there a way that people that can get involved in long COVID research, um, or there are opportunities to be a part of the research that UNC or others are doing around this topic?
3: Yeah, um, there, there is. Not a huge amount, especially in North Carolina right, right now, but UNC does have a research uh, trial specifically for people who had COVID, more so the uh, kind of acute phase, this earlier phase. But uh, I do know and, and we are supporting very much UNC that they have um, submitted an application for a federal grant to be able to do even more research specifically around long COVID and really thinking about what are the treatment modalities. So I think more to come, um, especially from our UNC long COVID clinic that people can, um, can look to for opportunities.
1: Excellent. Dr. Luddy, if folks want to find more information, is myspot.nc.gov the best place to go?
3: Yes, myspot.nc.gov. That's a great landing page, and on there you can navigate through all these different um, resources, um, information, and supports for people. We really want to make sure that information is easily accessible, understandable, accurate, and making sure people have at their fingertips everything that they need.
1: Excellent. MySpot.nc.gov. She is Dr. Elizabeth Tilson. I think I said your name wrong. I apologize for that, Dr. Tilson.
3: Oh the brain fog. Is, yeah,
1: yeah, it is. Uh, maybe I've got some long COVID. Who knows? She is the state health director and chief medical officer with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Tilson, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. We really appreciate it.
3: It's my pleasure. Thank you for it. This is really important information.
1: It is, and we're happy to share it. We're taking a quick break, but we'll be back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680
0: WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email Matters at transitionslifecare.org.
1: You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5. AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. I am Jason Kong, and as you heard earlier in the show, Mary is dealing with some back pain. We did have an interview scheduled with Dr. Tilson. I hope you enjoyed that, but uh, we thought we'd let Mary rest up a little bit for the rest of the show today. And in doing so, we're going to... Uh, listen to a segment that we recorded uh, about a month or so ago with Dr. Luddy related to hospice. We hope you enjoy this. Here is more on what hospice is and isn't with Dr. Luddy. We are very pleased to welcome into the studio today we have Dr. Alyssa Luddy with us, and she is a hospice and palliative care physician. Dr. Luddy, thanks so much for being on the show today. Hi,
4: thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
5: I'm so excited to have Dr. Luddy and that you all know, um, my, I talk a lot about my grandfather and in his last days of life uh, at the hospice home, Dr. Luddy, um, was so helpful and we're so grateful for everything she did for our family and for caring for him. Um, she really helped guide us in some of the most difficult times, but uh, it was very peaceful and, um, I'm forever grateful for oh. everything that you've done. Thank um, you. So I could think of nobody better to come on the show <laughs> to talk about what is hospice care because you have seen it all, and you're also uh, a physician in our hospital now for transitions. Correct. Which yes. is great. Um, so, Dr. Lay, let's start with the simple. Sure. You know, there's a lot of myths out there, and you know, you hear all sorts of things. I'm sure you hear it all at the hospital as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is hospice care, and who is eligible for services? a good question. Um, would it be helpful if I
4: started with sort of the difference between hospice and palliative mm. care? Because I feel like that's sometimes a lot easier to yeah, sort of enter would, in.
5: That's a good point. Good point. Um,
4: because oftentimes, so right now I spend my days, um, when I met you initially and mm-hmm. your grandfather, I was covering the hospice home for transitions and now I spend my days um, inpatient doing palliative care mm-hmm. uh, in consults. Um, so... So palliative care, because I think it's easiest to start with that, and hospice are not the same. Mm-hmm. They're different, similar, but very different, key differences. Um, palliative care is really a consult service, so we get called in to add to whatever care the patient is already getting um, and not to take over the care, mm-hmm. and so we often get called in to see patients in the hospital for usually a few reasons, so one is symptoms, Um, pain, shortness of breath, nausea, constipation, Um, sometimes to provide emotional support because it's always difficult to have a loved one in the hospital. But a lot of the times it's to sit down and have a more in-depth conversation with the family, and and sometimes the patient is included if they're able, about what's happening with them um, and really what possible treatment paths there are forward and help them decide what makes sense based on their values. Sometimes that path forward might include hospice, Mm -hmm. but not always. Um, And so palliative care can become part of someone's overall care at any point in a life-limiting illness. So that Mm -hmm. could be with diagnosis of something like cancer. Um, It could be later in their disease course, Uh, but it's, it's at any point. So the reason I kind of start with that is then that helps me go to like what hospice is, Mm -hmm, which is mm hospice is when really people are interested in fully comfort-focused care. They Mm -hmm. really have decided that is their main focus of their care, and they're not interested in maybe what we call disease-directed treatment, so um, things like chemotherapy for cancer, um, and they've wanted to really just have as high quality of days as possible for as long as possible. Mm Hospice is the team that does take over. They become the primary team mm-hmm. that takes care of the patient. And that care is provided wherever the patient lives. Mm-hmm. And so, and we can get into a little bit more of the details of what that means. Um, but it's a multidisciplinary team. And there's mainly the nurse is the primary contact for mm-hmm. the patient uh, and the, the key contact initially, other members of the team that are very important. Our social workers, chaplains, home health aides, it's all overseen by a physician, um, but they're again, their main
5: contact will be that nurse. You know, something that a lot of caregivers and patients are have along the, their journey and whatever that journey looks like is a really close tie with a primary care physician yeah. or a cardiologist in my grandfather's example. Yeah. Is that something that you can keep on if on palliative care and on hospice and what does that relationship look like with another provider in the mix in those mm. cases?
4: Um, certainly for palliative care, they would remain that primary, you know, they would remain in the same role. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, palliative care, did Mm -hmm. I say that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so that wouldn't change for when a palliative care has become involved. We don't, again, we're just an an additional consult. Mm -hmm. For hospice, they certainly can be the provider that if the patient says, I want it to be my primary care doctor, who's my attending, and the primary care doctor agrees, then that's definitely feasible. and it, sometimes, it happens, I would say oftentimes they choose to pick the hospice medical director or hospice attending to be the physician because they need to be contacted quickly and easily, mm-hmm. and that can be harder, you mm-hmm. know, as
5: a primary care doctor. Um, as I know I was one. So. <laughs> That's a good point. It's something you don't think about when you are trying to make these decisions, especially in an urgent, emergent situation, if yeah. you're at the hospital. Um, and when you think about going from palliative care to hospice, or even if you're in the hospital trying to decide when is the right time to consider hospice in mm. your trajectory or, or what does that look like on timing on hospice yeah. versus palliative care?
4: Yeah. So the other, and I think maybe I didn't include this in that first definition of hospice, it's really not only when there's the comfort focus, but also somewhat arbitrary prognosis of six months or less. So that's something that Medicare has kind of picked as the quote-unquote line in the sand. Um, and what that means is you have two physicians who agree that this patient has a overall prognosis of six months or less, and they want comfort-focused care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think... I think what, to go back to your the question you mm-hmm. just asked me, mm-hmm.
5: which was like, can you me, remind me what it was? I'm sorry. At what point in the trajectory? <laughs> I got no, 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 way. it's okay. At what point in the trajectory is the right time to consider? hospice? Ah, okay. So the
4: right time, sorry. The right time would be when both those things make are true for you. Mm-hmm. Like I want my care to be really comfort focused, and we think someone's kind of near that end point of their life. Mm-hmm. I will say a lot of people, Unfortunately, in my mind, come onto hospice pretty late mm-hmm. in that overall trajectory, and I think I think that's a missed opportunity. On to be honest, because I think the care that can be provided by hospice can really just make someone's quality so high, mm-hmm. um, and so sometimes there's not that opportunity to get that to get the symptoms under control and have them have really good time with their family or friends. Um, So I think when it's even sort of a question of, I'm tired of going to the hospital, Um, you know, I'm not sure I want to continue chemotherapy, if you're just kind of asking yourself those questions, I think it's worth just exploring it. Mm -hmm. You certainly don't have to make a decision in that moment. I think it's always worth finding out your options.
5: Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. I'm reading the book, or I just finished reading the book, When Breath Becomes Air. Mm. And the author is a physician who... Oh yeah, I read it. It's it's intense. Yeah. Um, but a great book. Yes. Wonderful um, book. He is a physician, or was a physician, who was battling lung cancer. And he talks at one point in the book about his body not being strong enough to take the treatment anymore. And in this case, yeah. his last days of life were spent with this dreadful disease in the hospital and, yeah. and where he passed. Do you see – and there you were just talking about the benefits of starting sooner rather than later. So you see that happen more often than not in your practice? for sure. And that's –
4: you know, and for some people that's that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what's hard is when you – maybe the question wasn't raised early enough or the topic was avoided because different fears within the family. And sometimes it's the patient's fear themselves. But, Mm -hmm. um, yes, I think – I think that is hard to see.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a challenge because it's hard to know exactly at what point you need to make that decision. But I think, you know, having the inputs from uh, your care team and making sure that you're Uh, understanding the options that are available to you are really important. We're speaking with Dr. Alyssa Luddy. She's a hospice and palliative care physician with Transitions Life Care, and we're going to continue our discussion on all things related to hospice and palliative care right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5, AM 680, WPTF News, Talk, Traffic.
0: This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care, here's your host, Jason Kong. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a
1: service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic, Good afternoon to you. If you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care, be sure to head on over to TransitionsLifeCare.org. TransitionsLifeCare.org. So many resources available for you online. Also, information about job openings if you're interested in pursuing a career opportunity with Transitions Life Care. Be sure to go to TransitionsLifeCare.org. Dot .org I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas our guest on the line is Mila Mason and Mila is an educator and nurse with Transitions Life Care and we're discussing the concept of total pain and Mary before the break we were talking about the concepts of pain and suffering we often hear these two lumped together so let's let's dive into that a little bit
5: Yeah Mila can you talk to us about the differences between pain and suffering like Jason said, always lumped together, but I, I, the more you talk about them, the more I think that they are a little bit different.
6: And you are correct. Um, so
5: they are related, but not necessarily
6: the same. So pain typically would be a physical or emotional pain. And there's typically a physiologic basis behind it. You know, you don't have... Um, abdominal pain necessarily, unless there's something going on in your belly that makes you have that physical pain. Um, Suffering on the other hand is more about um, the meaning that we place on that physical or emotional pain that we're experiencing. So for instance, somebody might say to themselves, this physical pain is because I'm not a good person. You know, I've done something wrong in my life. So now I'm being punished. That's when the suffering comes in. Um, and people can really be drowning in that suffering, thinking that, you know, they've done something wrong. And so all of these bad things are happening to them. It's more prevalent. I would say, when you talk, it, when you think about a, a younger person, a person who we would, would say, Oh, my gosh, they're too young to, to die, or to have this, you know, terminal illness. And, and sometimes, you know, that's where that suffering really um, ramps up, if you will.
5: Interesting. Uh, You know, I never knew those differences. It's very helpful. I think as a caregiver as well, it's very helpful for me to think about. And maybe we can dive in a little bit more there. The hospice team is a great resource and you've talked about some things we can do for the patient, but they can also be a resource for the other family members and loved ones as well. And coming from the caregiver perspective, I can imagine the sense of helplessness that may you know, and caring for their loved one that may be experiencing pain and they're seeing it or hearing it or or kind of noticing it, it may compel them to visit less frequently, for example. Are there ways that the hospice team can be a better resource for the family members and caregivers as well?
6: Oh, absolutely. Um, And I think it's important to know um, for the listeners out there that the patient isn't the only person. When we when we um, engage with a terminally ill person, we look at the family unit as the, the patient, if you will. So yes, there is a, a person who is the terminally ill person, but anybody that they consider their family unit is also who we want to care for. So, um, you know, sometimes our team works actually more with the family than with the, the patient um, who's terminally ill. Um, you know, sometimes our, our terminally ill patients might have dementia and not even perceive that we're even there for them, but we are there for their family members as well. And so as a nurse, one of my main roles is to help guide the family and patient through the physical changes that are going to likely happen as they um, decline. And then our social workers and our spiritual care chaplains and, um, even our volunteers and our CNAs are there to provide different kinds of support. So, um, conversational support, spiritual support, um, helping family members to get, um, maybe advance directives in order because maybe that wasn't done previously and now they're feeling stressed over needing that to be done and so we help them through all of those things and we're there to listen to them um and and work through those distressing elements or or suffering that they might be having and the the earlier we can start that relationship the better Mm. So if, if we don't get a patient on service until their final days or hours, then we can't really do the best job for that patient and their family. Um, Mm.
5: Let's dive in a little yet yeah, let's dive in a little bit deeper there. you know this is a very holistic approach to care it sounds like and the team the whole team participating in the care for both the patient and the family. So if you're referring very late in this pain cycle, it sounds like it could be a crisis. Can you talk to us about a little bit more about the importance of an earlier referral to hospice if you're starting to notice these things?
6: Absolutely. Um, you know the guidelines, Say that a person um, who who a doctor feels reasonably has six months or less to live um, is eligible for hospice. That's kind of the broad picture. And if we can engage in the services with those um, folks at that point, then we have let's say six months to help that family understand the changes that are going to occur, help them to get their um, affairs or, or paperwork, if you will, in order for, for, you know, um, their advance directives or even help them, you know, oftentimes we're asked about funerals, you know, to help them with funeral arrangements or anything else like that. So the sooner we can get in there and start building that relationship with them, um, the better, because people don't always want to open up to you on day one. Sometimes it takes several meetings with a patient or their families before they feel comfortable with the team to start being more open about their feelings. And if we can if we can get in there with them earlier then then that gives them a chance to work through some some emotional or, or even physical things that might be going on with them. Um, and while we can't fix necessarily years worth of family problems. It's, it's been a beautiful thing for me to be able to see families come together um, and, and even sometimes reconcile at end of life. Um, And that's another beautiful gift. If, if we're able to start that conversation early, Um, then sometimes people can, can reach a point of uh, emotional, spiritual, social, and physical um, comfort before they before they pass away, or before their loved one passes away.
5: Those are all really great points. It's something that I'm seeing with my grandfather who's now on services. You know, I'm a huge advocate for hospice. So it's it's something that, um, you know, was very important to me that as soon as we realized he could benefit from some of those services, we put him on. And now I'm seeing the whole team interact with him. You know, he's really built a bond with his aide and his nurse. And um, he's being able, you know, he's taking, they're taking such good care of him holistically and um, we're being able to do things like we've, we have a veterans ceremony coming up for him and um, a a team is coming out and my family is invited and we're all going to, he's going to do the pinning and have a little celebration Um, for his service. And I think that those are really special things and benefits of hospice um, and the volunteers that are able to come out and and spend time with him. And his quality of life has gotten so much better since we've been on hospice. And he really is, because we were able to bring him on so much sooner, really is able to benefit from all these services. And I think those were all really good points that you have.
6: And, and Mary, just, you know, I can't explain the phenomenon behind it, but sometimes people actually live longer Mm -hmm. once they go on to hospice services. Um, And it's not, I would say it's not because we're giving medications that help them to live longer or we're doing anything extraordinary. But I think when a person and when their family um, feel like they are in a good place, um, a safe place. And when they, um, sometimes we do actually withdraw medications. Um, but it, it there's something that somehow works together <laughs> and people have actually lived longer on hospice services than, than the doctors would have expected. So there's something to that
5: as well definitely
1: yeah thank you so much mila for coming on the show with us and explaining this topic to us it was a really fascinating discussion with mila mason who's the educator and nurse at transitions life care thank you so much for your time today we really appreciate you coming on the show
6: and thank you for having me
1: uh, it was our pleasure well we are just about out of time for today please don't forget head on over to transitions life care to learn more about Transitions Life Care and if you want to catch up on past episodes of Aging Matters, you can go to WPTF.com and click on the podcast button there and there you can find the Aging Matters section in all episodes of this show. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I'm Jason Kong, thanking you so much for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic.
0: You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.